0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Defendant by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 7 A Defence of Nonsense there are two equal and eternal ways of looking at this twilight world of ours we may see it as the twilight of evening or the twilight of morning we may think of anything down to a fallen acorn as a descendant or as an ancestor there are times when we are almost crushed not so much with the load of the evil as with the load of the goodness of humanity when we feel that we are nothing but inheritors of a humiliating splendor but there are other times when everything seems primitive when the ancient stars are only sparks blown from a boy's bonfire when the whole earth seems so young and experimental that even the white hair of the aged in the fine biblical phrase is like almond trees that blossom like the white hawthorn grown in may that it is good for a man to realize that he is the heir of all the ages is pretty commonly admitted. It is a less popular but equally important point that it is good for him sometimes to realize that he is not only an ancestor, but an ancestor of primal antiquity. It is good for him to wonder whether he is not a hero, and to experience ennobling doubts as to whether he is not a solar myth. The matters which most thoroughly evoke this sense of the abiding childhood of the world are those which are really fresh, abrupt, and inventive in any age, and if we were asked what was the best proof of this adventurous youth in the nineteenth century, we should say with all respect to its portentous sciences and philosophies, that it was to be found in the rhymes of Mr. Edward Lear, and in the literature of nonsense the dong with a luminous nose, at least is original, as the first ship and the first plough were original. It is true, in a certain sense, that some of the greatest writers the world has seen, Aristophanes, Rabelais, and Stern, have written nonsense, but unless we are mistaken it is in a widely different sense. The nonsense of these men was satiric, that is to say symbolic it was a kind of exuberant capering around a discovered truth there is all the difference in the world between the instinct of satire which seeing in the kaiser's moustaches something typical of him draws them continually larger and larger and the instinct of nonsense which for no reason whatever imagines what those moustaches would look like on the present archbishop of canterbury if he grew them in a fit of absence of mind we incline to think that no age except our own could have understood that the quangle wangle meant absolutely nothing and the lands of the jumblies were absolutely nowhere we fancy that if the account of the knaves trial in alice in wonderland had been published in the seventeenth century it would have been bracketed with bunyan's trial of the faithful as a parody on the state prosecutions of the time we fancy that if the dong with a luminous nose had appeared in the same period everyone would have called it a dull satire on oliver cromwell it is altogether advisedly that we quote chiefly from mr lear's nonsense rhymes to our mind he is both chronologically and essentially the father of nonsense we think him superior to lewis carroll in one sense Indeed, Lewis Carroll has the great advantage. We know what Lewis Carroll was in daily life. He was a singularly serious and conventional don, universally respected but very much of a pendant, and something of a Philistine. Thus his strange double life in earth and in the dreamland emphasizes the idea that lies at the back of nonsense, the idea of escape of escape into a world where things are not fixed horribly in an eternal appropriateness, where apples grow on pear trees, and any odd man you meet may have three legs. Lewis Carroll, living one life in which he would have thundered morally against anyone who walked on the wrong plot of grass, and another life in which he would cheerfully call the sun green and the moon blue, was by his very divided nature his one foot on both worlds, a perfect type of the position of modern nonsense. His wonderland is a country populated by insane mathematicians. We feel the whole is an escape into a world of masquerade. We feel that if we could pierce their disguises we might discover that Humpty Dumpty and the March Hare were professors and doctors of divinity enjoying a mental holiday this sense of escape is certainly less emphatic in edward lear because of the completeness of his citizenship in the world of unreason we do not know his prosaic biography as we know lewis carroll's we accept him as a purely fabulous figure on his own description of himself his body is perfectly spherical he weareth a runcible hat while lewis carroll's wonderland is purely intellectual Lear introduces quite another element, the element of the poetical and even emotional. Carroll works by the pure reason, but this is not so strong a contrast, for after all, mankind in the main has always regarded reason as a bit of a joke. Lear introduces his unmeaning words and his amorphous creatures not with the pomp of reason, but with the romantic prelude of rich hues and haunting rhythms. Far and few far and few are the lands where the jumblies live is an entirely different type of poetry to that exhibited in jabberwocky Carroll, with a sense of mathematical neatness makes his whole poem a mosaic of new and mysterious words but edward lear with more subtle and placid effrontery is always introducing scraps of his own elvish dialect into the middle of the simple and rational statements until we are almost stunned into admitting that we know what they mean. There is a genial ring of common sense about such lines as For his aunt Jabiscus said Everyone knows that a pobble is better without his toes. Which is beyond the reach of Carol. The poem seems so easy on the matter that we are almost driven to pretend that we see his meaning that we know the peculiar difficulties of a pobble that we are as old travellers in the Gramboulian Plain as he is. Our claim that nonsense is a new literature, we might almost say a new sense, would be quite indefensible if nonsense were nothing more than a mere aesthetic fancy. Nothing sublimely artistic has ever risen out of mere art any more than anything essentially reasonable has ever arisen out of pure reason. There must always be a rich moral soil for any great aesthetic growth. The principle of art, for art's sake, is a very good principle if it means there is a vital distinction between the earth and the tree that has its roots in the earth. But it is a very bad principle if it means that the tree could grow just as well with its roots in the air. Every great literature has always been allegorical, allegorical of some view of the whole universe the iliad is only great because all life is a battle the odyssey because all life is a journey the book of job because all life is a riddle there is one attitude in which we think that all existence is summed up in the word ghosts another and somewhat better one in which we think it is summed up in the words a midsummer night's dream Even the vulgarist melodrama or detective story can be good if it expresses something of the delight in sinister possibilities, the healthy lust for darkness and terror which may come on us any night walking down a dark lane. If therefore nonsense is really to be the literature of the future, it must have its own version of the cosmos to offer. The world must not only be the tragic romantic and religious, it must be nonsensical also, And here we fancy that nonsense will, in a very unexpected way, come to the aid of the spiritual view of things. Religion has for centuries been trying to make men exult in the wonders of creation, but it has forgotten that a thing cannot be completely wonderful so long as it remains sensible. So long as we regard a tree as an obvious thing, naturally and reasonably created for a giraffe to eat, we cannot properly wonder at it it is when we consider it as a prodigious wave of the living soil sprawling up to the skies for no reason in particular that we take off our hats to the astonishment of the park keeper everything has in fact another side to it like the moon the patroness of nonsense viewed from that other side a bird is a blossom broken loose from its chain of stalk man is a quadruped begging on its hind legs, a house a gigantic-esque hat to cover a man from the sun, the chair an apparatus of four wooden legs for a cripple with only two. This is the side of things which tends most truly to spiritual wonder. It is significant that in the greatest religious poem existent, the Book of Job, the argument which convinces the infidel is not as has been represented by the merely rational religionism of the eighteenth century a picture of the ordered beneficence of the creation but on the contrary a picture of the huge and indecipherable unreason of it hast thou sent the rain upon the desert where no man is this simple sense of wonder at the shapes of things and at their exuberant independence of our intellectual standards and our trivial definitions is the basis of spirituality as it is the basis of nonsense nonsense and faith strange as the conjunction may seem are the two supreme symbolic assertions of the truth that to draw out the soul of things with a syllogism is as impossible as to draw out Leviathan with a hook. The well-meaning person who, by merely studying the logical side of things, has decided that faith is nonsense, does not know how truly he speaks. Later it may come back to him in the form that nonsense is faith. End of chapter 7